0: As, we, as you find your seat, I want you to get your uh, scripture journal out or turn in your Bible to Colossians chapter chapter 1, please. While you're doing that, I just share with you, I'm so grateful for what God's doing here through this series. And I've learned recently that the brothers and sisters that live in Rosebud, they gather on Sunday morning and they stream our services And so they're a part of what we go on here, so I'm going to give a shout out to the Christians that are worshiping Rosebud with us this morning, as well as to all those that are joining us online from so many different different places. I continue to be amazed as I get emails, text messages, and Facebook posts about different folks that are listening in. So I am so grateful that you're a part of this series where we're learning what it means to be rooted, and we're wrestling with the question, what's... Forming you. Because in our world, and I would suggest that perhaps it is more prevalent now than it's ever been, there are so many competing voices that want to form and shape you. It seems that every entity, every person, every organization is demanding and competing for your attention, for your loyalty, for your perspective to see it their way. And so the question has to be asked, and it's not new to us, but we have to ask it in our own time, in our own way, say, what is forming, shaping, building my worldview as I try to live out this life? Now, what's fascinating to me is a guy that gets to dive into the Scriptures on a regular basis is the fact that that question is no different than the ones that were faced by the Christians in a town on the other side of the world called Colossae in the first century. And this was a small church, perhaps no more than 45 people, that had heard the gospel from a man named Epaphras who had heard it from a man named Paul. So Paul is, in many ways, the spiritual grandfather of this church. He, had, We don't even know if he ever visited that church, but he did not start this church. And so Epaphras is ministering to his congregation, to his flock, and they are wrestling with this question of what's forming them. They are hearing competing voices. They're hearing, hearing competing philosophies. And Epaphras feels like as ministers often do, that he's in way over his head. And so he runs back to Paul, and he shares an update with Paul, and Paul ministers to him and prays with him, and Paul writes a letter that he sends to the church, and it includes this teaching that we see in what's often referred to as the book of, or the letter to, the Colossian church. And as we've been going through this letter, last week we looked at uh, chapter 1, beginning in verse 15, where Paul begins to talk about the supremacy of Christ, and I compared it to a trip that I had to the Grand Canyon, where you stand on the edge of that and it becomes almost impossible to describe in words. It's one of those experiences where you have to see it and be there to understand it. And Paul paints this incredible picture of the role that Jesus plays as Jesus is Lord. And he doesn't back away from it. In fact, it just gets grander and grander and grander. And now what he's going to do is he's going to tell us how we are in relationship to that grand picture that he just painted. I grew up in Fort Worth, and we thought it was a Big deal when we got to go over to Six Flags. Okay? Now, I didn't realize at the time, but I thought Six Flags was the greatest theme park that had ever been built. It's not quite that great. Come to find out later. I didn't know that I was going to be going into youth ministry and then every year I'd be seeing Six Flags far more than I wanted Six, Fl- Six Flags. But as a kid, it seemed like this big, incredible place. And I was always fascinated because as we'd be in the Six Flags, and I'd be trying to figure out my way around, not that I got to run around it all by myself, but I was always fascinated trying to figure out where we were. And every so often, they would have something like this printed. These really cool and colorful maps. I love these maps. I thought they were just incredible. You can find maps like this at the mall. Another dated reference, if you want. But what I loved about this map was I could now see where the different lands were, the different rides were. But do you know what the most important part of the map, anytime that I was in a certain area and they had that map posted in that area, do you know what the most critical bit of information was? Exactly. You are here. Here's what I want you to understand. I want to talk about where you are in relation to the grandeur that Jesus is. Because that's what Paul does. Paul is about to give us the you are here. He's going to locate us in this incredible, big, cosmic map that he's painted on Jesus. And so I'm going to read through these verses. It's about nine verses. I'm going to read through them. I want you to read through and follow along on your app or in your scripture journal. I encourage you to do that. We're going to read straight through, and then I'm going to come back and make some points that I think is going to be a blessing to you and to me as we try to live this out. Colossians chapter 1, verse 21. Right before this verse, he's talked about how grand, how supreme, how preeminent Christ is. And now he comes to the you are here in this great big story. Verse 21, and you, here he goes, he's going to locate you. You once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard... ...which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven... ...and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions... ...for the sake of his body that is the church... ...of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God... ...that was given to me for you. To make the word of God fully known... That he powerfully works within me. What Paul is doing is he just showed the big map. Here's who Jesus is Jesus is Lord. And remember, Jesus is Lord was a very subversive phrase in this context. Because the Christians in the Colossi church, one thing that they were expected to do every year is they would go to the center of the city, go to the temple. And they would offer up some incense. And then they would be expected to utter the phrase, Caesar is Lord. And now they've been put in this place where suddenly they realize that Jesus is Lord. And there's no room for Jesus to share the throne. There's no room for him to share their allegiances with with anybody else. And so now they're wrestling with where do we fit And all this. And Paul's going to encourage them. He's shown them how great Jesus is. And now, almost at the point where they're just taken aback, they're looking at this vast vista, this grand canyon of glory of what Jesus is. And their breath's kind of taken away. They're saying, And here's how you fit in the story. Here's where you are on this map. And he starts in a very interesting place. And so, look with me, verse 21. And you, talking to those Christians in Colossae, or talking to us today, and you who were once, and look at these three words. And these are the words that I want you to circle, because this describes you. Alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Welcome to church. Paul is saying I can tell you where you are, but I've got to tell you first, and he's about to get to some good news, because let me tell you where you were. You were alienated. You were estranged. You were in a broken relationship with God. He is not mixing any words, and the words he's choosing leaves a little room. He's not saying you were in a place where you had just a little bit of hope that if you tried just a little bit harder, if you got your act just a little bit more cleaned up, then you would be able to find your way back to God. You were alienated. You were hostile. Some of them use you were an enemy of God. You were an enemy of God. Not a friend Not a frenemy. Not on an occasional name basis, but you were hostile and enemy to God. In case you haven't got it yet, you were doing evil deeds. You were committing evil deeds. Paul is laying out very clearly your location in relationship to God. And here's the bad news, the good news. God was completely, absolutely, beyond any doubt, out of your reach. That's the bad news. The good news is, you were not out of God's reach. Because look at what he does in the next verse. He has now, don't miss it. That was then, this is now. That was at one point, that was a truth, that was a reality. But now, now he has reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. He's reconciled. Now, that is a definitely a church word. That is a, we use it all the time in church, and it's actually on the rise in culture, especially as everybody talks about reconciliation out in the world between different groups that are hostile to one another. That's a good use of the word. Because what the word is saying is, it's when you reconcile, you're bringing two things together. In fact, sometimes the use means you transfer from one state to to another, you bring in alignment. Maybe you're familiar with it in financial terms, you reconcile. The checkbook. You reconcile the accounts. You make sure that everything comes into sync. That which was out of sync, that which was disconnected, that which could not come together, can now be lined up. We're very familiar with the phrase irreconcilable differences. Meaning two people, two things that cannot be brought back together again at least by our estimation. And so, what he's saying is he has now, not that you worked hard, not that you woke up one day and said, now I'm going to play for God's team, not that you earned your way back to God, but he has reconciled you, and he did it in a very dramatic way. He's reconciled you in his body, this is talking about Jesus, of his flesh by his death. The physical death of of Jesus on the cross is the means and the power by which God has reconciled you. It is the rescue that God has brought you. It is the way by which He reached you. You did not find God. God has always been seeking and passionately coming after you. And this is not politically popular or correct, but you had an absolute need to be rescued and saved. You were not going to accomplish it on your own. And it took nothing short than the death of Jesus on the cross. I heard it phrased this way. The bridge that connects us back to God is splattered with the blood of Jesus. Because you and I needed it. Paul's reminding us where we are on this incredible map as we stand at the grandeur of who Jesus is. Saying Jesus is not only Lord of all that you can see and all that you can't see, but He's Savior as well. And it was your need and my need and the Christians in Colossae's need for someone to redeem them and bring them back into a right relationship with God. And Paul's saying, that's exactly what Jesus did. And he laid down his life to do that. And because of that, in order to present you holy and blameless, above reproach before him. Do you understand that language? To present you. okay. If you've ever been, perhaps, at a wedding and then... After the wedding and they're coming into the reception, somebody calls out and presents each of the brides, the, the bridal party and the groom's party, and then it builds to this kind of crescendo, and then they say, and now we present Mr. and Mrs. and in walks and everybody's standing and cheering. You're bringing somebody into the presence of, into the position of. And so Paul is saying once, used to, back when, you were far from God. Now, Jesus is ushering you into the very presence of God and saying, Father, look who I have with me. Look who's here. And at the moment where we should feel shameful and guilty, because at that moment we've got to be aware of all the evil deeds that we've done, He's saying, No, no, no. He presents you holy. Set apart. Distinct. And blameless. I'm going to suggest that experiencing what it feels like authentically to be blameless is something that you and I have not experienced since the age of six minutes. That our entire life is marked with some kind of brokenness, some kind of shame, some kind of guilt. And yet, Paul is accounting for the truth. It says, No, Jesus brings you into the very presence of God, and you are at this moment before God blameless. And Jesus is proud. to be associated with you. He goes on. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. Now, Paul is talking about the power of the gospel here. And he says, this message that goes around the world, or this message that you've heard goes around the world, and it applies to, To every color, creed, nationality, financial system, order of government, whatever it is, this gospel knows no bounds. This is where everybody that's going to come under the name of Jesus, this is where they're all positioned on this map. All creation in heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. He continues. Now. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body that is the church. Paul's going to change tones here because now he's going to start talking about some struggles. And this is some hard words to hear because so many times we're lured into wanting to follow an easy gospel. Everybody likes the gospel. It says, if you would just follow Jesus, your life gets nicer and sweeter and more successful. And that does not describe Paul's life at all. The closer Paul got to God, the harder and more difficult his life became because it cost him something. He suffered all kinds of persecutions. And Paul is telling these Believers, these young Christians in the Colossian church, it says, don't be deceived by a gospel that tells you it's all going to get nice. Paul would say that's no gospel at all. Not that our suffering earns us God's affection. We just said that following Jesus means we're going to follow in the way of Jesus and therefore difficulty and struggles will come. And so Paul writes these words from prison. Prison. That's why he's not going in person yet to see this church. And so he's saying, this is an interesting phrase, he's saying, saying, all my sufferings for your sake, because you're hearing the message, because I told Epaphras and Epaphras passed it on to you, my sufferings have delivered something to you. And so he's actually rejoicing in them. I got to play a part in that. God used me in this moment, in this moment of, of struggle and self-denial, and discomfort. He used me in a moment to bring you that message, and it's taking root, and it's producing fruit. And he's excited about that. He says, and in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. Now, that's an interesting phrase, and I had to struggle a lot with it this week. What Paul is getting at it's not that there's something lacking in what Christ, like Paul's suffering more than Christ. He's just saying, I am, that Christ's suffering's not done yet. Until Christ is formed in you, there's still going to be a struggle, there's still going to be difficulty. Sometimes he actually compares it. In fact, he does this um, earlier. He compares it to, I struggle for you like a woman in childbirth. Now, why he chose that metaphor, I don't know. Because I'm never going to choose that metaphor. I'm never going to pretend. But there's this longing, this aching, this struggle. And Paul's saying, I know that what it is to wrestle on your behalf. To struggle on your behalf. And so he's telling this Colossian church. He's telling you and me. He says, when you find yourself on this map and you realize that Jesus is Lord and Savior... And then you begin to experience some struggles for it, that is no indication that God somehow left you. Your struggles and challenges because you've held up Jesus' name is not an indication that God's abandoned you. In fact, it probably means exactly the opposite that you're coming closer and closer to where He is Lord of your life. And so Paul's saying this is still playing out, this is still an ongoing work that is the church. Afflictions for the sake of his body, the church, you and me together. He finishes this way of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, to them. God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, this is the mystery he's talking about. When he says the word mystery, if you want to circle that word, circle, then draw a line directly to Christ in you. What he just did on the map is incredible. He said, Once you're far from God but because of what God did, because of what Jesus did. You've been relocated, you've been reconciled, and now you're in the very presence of God. And Jesus is proud to present you, blameless and holy before God. There's a major move there, and he says, oh, but let me tell you about a bigger move. He says, now here's a mystery, and he uses the word mystery because it almost is more than Paul can get his theological mind around, is that God is living in you. Understand the context. This is in a time where both the Jewish people and all the surrounding that worshiped other gods, God resided in the temple. Now, nobody ever thought that God was just limited to the four walls of the building. But if your temple stood, and if it was strong and proud, and it could be located, It meant that God was on the throne. He was present. He was powerful. You could go to a place and feel closer to him. You could go through some rituals and you could grow closer to him. You could move very physically and tangibly in the direction of God. You could see him. And what Paul says is, no more. He says, to this little, small church that perhaps is insignificant in the larger picture of the Roman world, he says... Now Christ has set up in you. He's moved into your neighborhood and he's put on flesh that is you. He's alive in your life. You are now the temple. You are now the location of God. It is not anymore about you going on a journey to go seek him. God has come to you and he's so close that he's actually Dwelling in you. This map just keeps getting better and better. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Last two verses say this Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works. Within me, Paul's saying, I'm still struggling. And what's he struggling about? I want everyone to be mature in Christ. We're about to get to our theme verse where we get this idea of rooted from. T- chapter 2, verse 6 and 7. But what Paul is longing for in this letter and the question that we're wrestling with is, Will you grow up? Will you mature? Will you be formed in Him? And so he gives us this incredible picture of what's on the map. And so I want to just sum it up this way. Here's what Paul's trying to tell us. When he says, you are here, here's what he's telling us. He says, once you were far from God. That was your condition. Not that somebody else needed it, but that you needed it. But now, you're in his presence. You have moved into the presence of God. You stand before The king and creator of the entire cosmos. And then the biggest mystery of all, and Christ is in you. There's the spot on the map. Paul says, that's where you are. So I want to ask you this. Where are you on the map? Have you made that choice? that said, Yes, Jesus is Lord. I acknowledge that I can no longer do it myself. The, the Christian claim is very humbling, actually. Sometimes people want to criticize Christianity because they say, Well, you've got an exclusive claim. You've got a claim that, that you think your claim's better than everybody else. And I said, Yes, our claim is exclusive, but it's exclusive in this way. It's a claim that that I make that says, I acknowledge I could not save myself and I needed someone to do what I could not do. That's our claim. So where are you in the map? Are you at this moment still in that far from alienated enemy of location? Or have you stepped into a relationship with Jesus? But even as I say that, you're thinking my relationship with Jesus is not described by first or I keep first Corinthians, by Colossians, by Colossians one, twenty-one through twenty-nine. That doesn't describe you. And if that's not your experience yet where you see yourself on the map in that kind of way before this grandeur and that fills you with some kind of excitement and joy, like Paul says, because he rejoices in that moment. But instead, for you, it's still this moment of dread. Then I want to ask you about what kind of story are you living out? Because we can all live out two different stories. I came across this week as I was preparing a YouTube TED Talk that I've posted on the resources, and encourage you to watch that later, but it's by a Nigerian author, Chimanda Adichie, and in that TED Talk, she talks about the danger of the single story, and what she describes is her experience, and she's very well-read, and, and she's now a prolific writer and she's talking about she grew up in nigeria and reading from an early age most of the books that she had access to came from britain came from the uk and so as she became a writer she started writing stories that included stories about people playing in the snow people talking about the weather and people eating apples. Three things that coming from Nigeria she never experienced herself. She didn't experience snow. She ate apples not mangoes. I mean she ate mangoes not apples. And she said she said in Nigeria you don't have to talk about the weather. It's always the same. And she said she had a certain picture in her head. She had a single story in her head about what it meant to write stories. And so she had to learn all over again what it meant. She wrote stories from her experiences that showed her story. And she talked about how easy of a fallacy it is to fall into and keep defining people by one story. A whole people group or a person. So I want to ask you, what story are you living Because we all have two stories. It's so easy to lock people into a story, isn't it? And the majority of the time, we either feel locked into or we lock somebody else into the story of the worst moment of their life, right? The worst mistake, the sin, the brokenness that they either caused, created, or experienced. And we keep defining them by that story. What Paul is trying to tell us in this is that he wants us to live the new, true story. You were once that. Yes, you were once shameful. You were once a drunkard. You were once an alcoholic. You were once profane. You were once a jerk. You were once a relationship breaker. Whatever it is, and you just insert in there whatever you were once. And Paul would say, but if you're in Christ, that's not your first story anymore. It's been supplanted by a bigger, grander story. That is Christ in you. That's where you are in relationship on the map. That's where you are in the story. So I'm going to challenge you and invite you to live out that story. And as you live that one out, it will change how you see everybody else. Because as you understand the story that you get to live out, you will stop defining everybody else by their worst moment. By their past. By their guilt. By their shame. Because reconciled people find joy when somebody else is reconciled. Reconciled people realize that everybody that they, ha- that they meet is a candidate for reconciliation also. And couldn't our world use more of that? There's what Paul proclaims. Which story will you live? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, as we look at the grandeur of Jesus and how supreme He is, and it's almost like seeing the Grand Canyon in front of us and we stand in awe. Father, I pray that you would show us in a very tangible way how we're positioned in front of you, how Jesus laid down His life to present us holy and blameless before you, that we can come into your presence not as children that can cower in front of you hoping that you're just not too angry with us or too disappointed or too far gone but holy and blameless children of the king, not because we earned it but because Jesus brought us there he put us on the map and he gave us a new story Father, may we live out of this new story. Father, I pray for students that as they interact in their classes with their teachers, with their friends, that they're living out a different story than those around them. That there's a rejoicing and a joy there. Father, I pray for those that are single, that as they engage in relationships, as they date, that they would live out a different story. Father, I pray that for spouses, that as they treat one another, to treat one another from this new story and not old stories that come from the past. Not old stories of hurt and brokenness. Father, I pray... For those that may be senior saints. And they're in the back half of this life. And perhaps this is a brand new thought to them. That they have been wrestling this whole time trying to please you, trying to please you, trying to please you. Realizing that it's Jesus that is the one that pleases you. And we're the ones that get to reap the benefits of that and the blessings of it that this would become the story of their life. No longer needing to chase some kind of approval, but knowing that you love them immensely. Father, wherever we find ourselves in this, I pray. I pray that we would lean into you all the way. And for those that are hearing this message and they have yet to say that Jesus is Lord... They have yet to experience what it can come from being baptized into your name. That you would begin to work on that heart, on that life, and help them to find themselves in a whole new place on the map in your presence. In the name of Jesus' I pray, the one that we praise. Amen.